Welcome. You're listening to a sermon podcast from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. So in 1988, somewhere around 1988 uh, or so, my, at that time, future father-in-law-to-be gave me some cassette tapes. Many of you remember those. Uh, cassette tapes that had some sermons on them by a pastor in Minnesota whose name was Dave Johnson. And he said to my father-in-law, future father-in-law, said to me, I think you're going to like him, Mike. So I listened to these cassette tapes, and I listened to several of them, and I was immediately drawn, not just by what he was saying, but by how he was saying it. And what struck me right away is that it was authentic. It was real. This was a guy who wasn't going over the same old crusty religious stuff, slapping, you know, religious things on top of the pains of life and hoping that somehow it had a medicinal quality and it would go away. But he was digging down beneath the surface, and I immediately gravitated toward it and was drawn to it. Fast forward to around 2003 or 2004, some 15 or 16 years Later, I was sitting in a gathering in San Francisco with some other pastors, and Dallas Willard was teaching us in this seminar. And there was a guy sitting next to me, kind of introduced myself. He said who he was. And the way he talked, I thought, I've heard this voice before. And so I said, what is your name? Dave Johnson. Dave Johnson. Are you a pastor in Minnesota? Yeah, I'm pastor of Church of the Open Door. Really? I told him back in 1988, my future father-in-law, whatever. Well, that started a... Uh, a friendship with Dave, and Dave and Kent and I have had a friendship since then, going back to 2003, 2004. And I don't mean a friendship like, hey, how you doing? I don't mean that. I mean a friendship like three guys, pastors, and somehow found in each other friendship, connection, quite frankly, found life and hope through each other. This sense of Uh, ministry to each other and connectedness to each other. And so uh, as that friendship started and I got to know Dave a little bit more, I found him to be real, like he was coming through on the sermon. I found him to be raw, like he was coming through on those cassette tapes. And I found him to always wanting to invite us past the surface, past the religious stuff, and down into the real thing where apprenticeship to Jesus happens. So 33 years ago, My future father-in-law was almost right when he said, Mike, I think you're going to like this guy. Because it turns out, I absolutely love this guy. So give a welcome to my friend, Dave Johnson. Thanks, man. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you probably heard that. Mike was on, right? right? Yeah, I love you too, knucklehead. That's how you talk when you actually are friends. And you do love each other. And I, um, I can't tell how grateful I am for the friendship I've got with Mike and Kent. And, and because of that, with this church, uh, it means um, as, at least as much to me as it does to those guys and Mike. So thanks for that. I'm delighted to be here. I was here a year ago, February, just before COVID hit. It's been a crazy year. Mike told me to talk about this new series, What's On Your Mind?, <laughs> which is a little scary because I have a lot of uh, schizophrenic, like ADHD things on my mind. So I want to focus on something here. But the first thing 
that is actually on my mind. It's this art scam thing that you guys did this last week and was kind of up on the stage because I, I, I saw you see these, these kids. Ron Wolheiser in his book, uh, Sacred Fire, speaking of blessing, says the essence of a blessing is, among other things, to see. Um, because in seeing, there is delight. And in delight, there is the blessing. And in blessing, there is a capacity to call out life, to actually name, to tell people who they are. Because you saw them, and in that there came blessing, and in that there came this capacity to call, and I'm grateful that I got to see you see your kids that way. I just want to tell you, from an outside perspective, you did good. You did really good with this thing. Second thing on my mind is how, in stark contrast, all of this, this festive, joyful thing that was up on the stage with the kids, is to what most of us have on our minds, uh, including myself, these Days because uh, what most of us have on our minds these days, myself included, are heavy things, um, disturbing and disorienting things at time. Pandemic, a global pandemic, whatever else it was, it was very disorienting, sometimes frightening things, racial unrest, political divides, even some unfixable things, some irrevocable things that aren't going to come Back, and it's not just in the culture, though it is there, and it's not just in politics, it's in the church as well, and it's not just um, all the obvious things, the public things that make the headlines in the newspaper, it's all the private things and personal things that just happen to you and to me and to us because something just shifted. Um, you don't know exactly why, and the pendulum of your life swung. From good to bad and then back again and the pendulum does swing. You guys, you know it's true. Sometimes it swings with blinding speed and when it does, life plans are altered, goals are changed, futures become uncertain when in the blink of an eye the whole world looks different than it did yesterday. Because someone dropped a bomb or started a war or pulled a trigger or ran a red light or spread a rumor or got a diagnosis or, or, or broke a vow. So now the marriage you thought you had, um, you don't. You might still have a marriage, but the marriage you thought you had, you, you don't. The job you thought you had, you don't. The health you maybe thought last week you had, you you. Don't, because something just shifted. Um, the pendulum swung, and all of that raises this question, and it's what's on my mind uh, today. The question is this, how do we as God's people um, navigate all that, respond to all that? How do we keep our balance in the middle of that life reality when the pendulum swings? The psalmist said it this way, and I like it that the psalmist said it because he's acknowledging that what I'm talking about is a life Reality, what he says is this, when the foundations are shaken, when the pendulum swings, what can the righteous do? When the wicked bend the bow, when they make ready their arrow on the string and it feels like they're aiming it right for me, when they shoot from unseen places in darkness at the upright heart, and he's talking about his own heart, I'm the upright one and people are shooting at me, that kind of thing. What, what, what are we supposed to do? What can the righteous 
doing? Don't tell me to run, he says in verse 1 of Psalm 11, to flee like a bird to your mountain and day. Indeed, the way he asks the question here is, is kind of indignant. How can you say that to me? How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? Because that's what I want to do. And that's the last kind of advice I need to go circle the wagons and just go stick my head in a hole and run for my life. That's bad advice. So go back to the question. When the foundations are shaken... When it looks like evil's winning. Ah. Um, more darkness than light, more evil than good, more questions than answers. What can the righteous do? How do we navigate that? But to that answer, um, to, but to answer that question, let me start with another question. How did they? And, and by they, I mean Peter like Peter. I mean, I mean people like Peter and Paul and Mary and Martha and James and John and Elizabeth too. I mean, all those people who came before us, who are part of the story, the story of God, our spiritual fathers and our spiritual mothers. I mean, the people that we read about in the book, in the scriptures, um, and in the book of Acts in particular, I'm going to touch on some things. People who actually knew what it felt like. This is not a foreign experience. If we experience foundations shaking, these are people who knew what it felt like for the foundations to shake, for the pendulums to swing. Because at Pentecost, dial into the story there. We'll just pick it up right there. In Acts chapter 2, the pendulum had swung into some wonderful places when the Spirit came with power. Like a mighty rushing wind, and people came to faith. Three thousand in one day after the first Peter sermon by Peter after Pentecost. After the second sermon by Peter in chapter, I think the next chapter, five thousand more came to faith. And if you're in that area and you're experiencing that kind of pendulum swing, you're kind of thinking, "I think we're going to win this this thing. We're on the right team." Here, things are going extremely well. We're going to win the world. But then in Acts chapter 4, the pendulum swings. Uh, and with blinding speed, because in Acts chapter 4, Peter and John are arrested, given 39 lashes, threatened with execution if they don't stop talking about the name, the name of Jesus. Forty lashes save one. And we read over that. I don't know how you've done that. I grew up in church. I heard these. Oh, he's 30 lashes save one. Okay, I guess. And then they went on. But wait, 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 that's an execution for most people. And um, so the pendulum, that's a really bad day. So the pendulum has swung into some really hard things. But then in Acts 4, it swings again uh, because the word of God is continuing to spread in Acts chapter 5. As signs and wonders are taking place among the people and the apostles are being held in high esteem. So they get 39 lashes over there. But now... Everybody loves them. They're being held in high esteem as they spoke the word with boldness. And multitudes believed. Uh, so I think things are good <laughs> right now. But then the pendulum swings again. Uh, with Stephen, When Stephen is stoned in chapter 7 and persecution, and persecution arises in chapter 8. And though Saul is converted in Chapter 9, James is beheaded in chapter 12, and so it goes like that. Throughout the book of Acts, the pendulum swings, sometimes with blinding speed, and it's just part of the story. It's just part of the deal. It's part of 
life in the kingdom of God, but in life it's just part of the deal. Now pick it up here in chapter 14. Because why not just kind of zone in on Paul himself. In Acts 14, Paul heals a man who's been lame since birth. The people seeing this uh, respond quite positively. They think he is a god, and because of that, the crowds begin to grow. So the pendulum is swinging in a very good direction as the crowd is declaring the gods have become like men and they have come down to us to be with us. They begin to call Barnabas Zeus and they call Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And it's all pretty heady stuff, but it didn't last long because the pendulum swings. And when it does, The crowd gets turned. Some people came from Antioch and poisoned the crowd with lies about Peter and Paul and Barnabas. And and now, instead of being considered a god, just a few verses later, they're stoning Paul in verse 19. He's being stoned. After they stone him, they drag him out of the city and leave him there for dead. And it happened in the blink of an eye from being considered a god Crowds are coming, and now he's being stoned, dragged out of the sea, left for dead. Two verses. Pendulum swings. But it's happened to you, too. We hear this story of the Apostle Paul, and it's kind of so far out there and weird. It happens to you, too, and to me. We're part of this story because things were going well. Uh, I mean... We, we, have, we got things under control, and I don't mean that in a controlling way. Like, we had some room to breathe there for a while. God's presence was real in our church or in our marriage, our family. Um, answers were obvious. Directions clear. Um, faith is strong. We know what we're doing, <laughs> finally. Um, but then something shifts. You're not sure what. The pendulum swings, and... You were a god yesterday, and today you're an idiot. That's a pastor's perspective on ministry right there. Anyway, there it is. Um, But now check this out about Paul. Um, After they left him for dead in verse 19, I mean, again, I don't know if you do this, but I've read those stories, and you just buzz right by him, left him for dead, and then he got up. But I sit in that for bed, stoned, dragged out, Left for dead um, in verse 19. It says in verse 20, um, he got up. It's all it says. As the disciples were around him, and he got up. That's all he did. Like you do. After you're stoned and dragged out, left for dead, you get up. That's what he did. He just got up. Then it says, next verse, he goes back into the city where they stoned him, like you do. Stupid move. Next day, he goes to Derby, then to Lystra, then to Iconium, and then to Antioch. Here's what he was doing, strengthening the souls of the disciples in verse 22, encouraging them to continue in the faith. And he kept doing that such that in Acts 19, everyone who lived in Asia, amazing, heard the word of the Lord. And the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified as extraordinary miracles. Stop right there. Because that's in in contrast to regular, everyday, ordinary miracles. Extraordinary miracles are taking place by the hands of Paul. Which means the pendulum has swung into really positive directions. And the picture I get of Paul in all of that pendulum swing into positive things coming off a stoning, if you will, is that this guy... Never stops. 
Um, they stone him, drag him out of the city, leave him for dead. He gets up. He's the Energizer Bunny, okay? Keeps going and go- doesn't matter what. He keeps going and going and going. And I find that incredibly irritating. Um, like, I want to identify with a person like that. Anybody who's in the Bible, I want to hear their story. Where does my story intersect with that story? I remember the very first time I preached through the book of Acts, and I was kind of getting this pattern. You know, I was kind of going, wow, wow, wow. And, and this Energizer bunny came to my mind, and it kind of bugged me. And I noticed that it bugged me because um, I can't relate to that nonstop kind of thing. He, he, he never seemed faced by rejections that he got. I, 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 I kind of have a feeling, looking at his life, I'm going, I could never keep up with this. I think you have a lot of energy, but I don't think I could keep up with that. And, and I try, try to imagine this, being on a missionary journey with Paul, and then, you know, one day, just get up and say, you know, Paul, I'm, I'm really tired. <laughs> like, I think you're done. I mean, he's like, you're not going to say that to the Energizer Bunny guy. Um, so I wanted to get closer. I, honestly, um, in... I wondered, I would love to talk to him um, and, and ask him some questions. And I know that's a stupid thing to want because he's dead and gone and whatever. Um, but I would, I would want to ask him questions, and they'd be personal questions. Like, like Paul, do, um, did, you, did you ever get tired? Um, did you ever skip a beat? Did you, did you ever lose your balance? Were you ever thrown off course? Did, did, did you ever get confused? Like, what do I do now? Did you ever want to bail, doubt yourself, or even God? Because to hear Luke could tell it, and Luke is the guy who wrote Acts, and it was very much like a historical record. To hear Luke tell it, you never did <laughs> get tired or lose your way or get off course. You're the Energizer Bunny. But as weird as it is to think you could have a conversation with Paul, I found a way to do it. And I didn't hear voices, so don't worry about that. I did find a way to talk to him and hear his answers to my questions, and I did it by means of Second um, Corinthians, the second letter to the Corinthians, because the second letter to the Corinthians was written during this season, between Acts 13 and Acts chapter 20, and it's fascinating really, to hear his kind of behind-the-scenes take on that same season in his life that Luke is reporting on, and that makes it look like he just keeps going and going. Because the very first thing he says in the, in the first chapter, the eighth verse, he says this, I need you to know something. Now, that's my paraphrase, and it's as if he's talking to me or talking to you. Dave, 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 you need to know something as you read Acts 13 through 20. And actually, here's what he said. I don't want you to be unaware brethren, um, about the affliction that came to us in Asia. For we were, here's the truth, we were burdened excessively beyond our strength such that we despaired even of life. Wait, wait, you, what? So not the energizer, but you despaired of life. Yeah, and when we were in Macedonia, Second Corinthians 7, 5, might have looked good in Acts But our flesh had no rest. We had conflicts without. We had fears within. But God, he says in verse 6, who comforts the depressed. Stop right there. But God who comforts the depressed. Paul said he was depressed. Um, And when he was depressed, he didn't act like he wasn't depressed. He didn't deny that he was. He said it right 
And God who comforts the depressed comforted us, says in verse 6, by the coming of Titus, which I love as well. <laughs> because it means what comforted me was not somebody coming with a refrigerator magnet Bible verse to tell me how everything's going to be fine. What I needed was a friend, and God comforted me by the coming of a friend who would sit and talk and listen and pray. He needed confirmation that he wasn't alone, and all of that is helpful to me. I hope to you as well to see the human side of Paul, because if Paul was afraid, and if Paul got depressed, like you do sometimes, and I do too, and needed help from a friend, maybe it means... That when I get depressed and discouraged and afraid and need help from a friend, um, I'm not defective and disqualified. Um, but that's not the only point I want to make about Paul in this kind of rambling here. Uh, the, the only point is not just that he was human and, and that he got depressed, which is a good thing to know because he was human. Because the overriding theme of his life um, was that he did persevere in faith. Um, that he did press on and press through things that were literally the foundations of his life being shaken. And here's the key, I think, the secret sauce for him. And it's this, that while Paul did acknowledge his frailty, which is good, and he was honest about his pain and his need for help along the way, as I said a minute ago, when he got depressed, he didn't pretend that he wasn't, put on a happy face and call that faith. Well, that's pretend. That's not faith. Um, he was honest about that stuff, but, but here's the deal. He did not embrace those things uh, as if they had the power to establish his identity or determine his destiny. They did not have the final say, the last word as to what he would do and where he would go and how he would live. So, am I afraid? Would ask Paul? Yes! <laughs> Second Corinthians verse 4. Do I need help? Of course. Am I afflicted? In every way. Second Corinthians 4 verse 8. Perplexed all the time. Persecuted part of the deal. It's part of the deal. But I'm not crushed, not despairing, not forsaken, not destroyed. Why? How? Here's why and here's how, I think. Because while Paul saw his problems clearly and felt the pain of them deeply, he just saw more. He didn't deny the pain. He didn't deny the problem. He saw more than that. Second Corinthians 4.18, you know this verse. For we look not at things which are seen, but things unseen. For the things which are seen are temporal. Stop right there. The thing, when he says, um, for we look not at things which are seen, it almost sounds like, well, I'm not paying attention to it. I'm going to just deny that problem. I don't look at things that are obvious. That's not what he means. Um, when he talks about things that are seen, what he says is they're real, uh, but they're temporal. Uh, they, 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 they do not have that eternal, so this is going to go away. And, and there's another verse, a few verses after this, where he talks about this momentary light affliction. Remember that? And, and I used to think, what was the momentary light affliction? Well, he's talking about a bad day, momentary. He got a bad week, maybe a bad month, maybe he had a bad year. Um, this momentary light affliction, what he's 
talking about is just, it's just one, it's just one life long. This momentary light affliction where the pendulum keeps swinging. For the things which are seen are temporal, but things unseen are eternal. And that is why, because the things unseen are eternal and there's something else to look at. That's why though afflicted, not crushed. Though perplexed, not despairing. Because though I see the problem clearly, I'm not in denial. Um, not minimizing it. And I feel the pain deeply. I just see more. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, This faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not Seen And things not seen are eternal things. So people of faith, now I'm answering this question finally, people of faith who eventually find their balance when the foundations of their life actually do shake are people who live with this realization that this life is not all there is to life, that there is more going on in life than what we can see right in front of us. What we can see is real, but there's more going on than that, which means that when the foundations are shaken, and they will be, and they are being, people of faith don't deny it, don't minimize it. They don't put on a happy face and call it faith because though they see what is real, they just see more. And what they see is a bigger story. And what they have is an eternal perspective. And what they know is that this life is not all there is to life. And what that produces, among other things, is freedom and a kind of fearlessness when you're in the pocket of this. Because we go in and out of this kind of ability to see. It produces a kind of fearlessness to live and to love and to endure and to stay and to... Attempt and sometimes to defy and to keep saying yes to God even when the foundations are shaken. And I think we need to know that it can be done. Um, that people can live like that. And it's why I think we need to hear these stories of those who did, of those who've gone before, who are part of the story, they're part of our story. I think of one of, it's in the book of Daniel, and there's these three guys with these really weird names. Shadrach, Meshach, and um, away we go. Something like that. Anyway, got a better laugh than the first thing. Anyway, um, <laughs> but you know, Nebuchadnezzar said, you have to bow down to me. And if you don't bow down to me, you're going to get thrown into the fiery furnace. And here's the deal about this. Without going deep into the story, I promise you they saw the furnace. It was Real. And they didn't find their courage by going to each other. It's not that hot. Don't worry. It's a dry heat. Anyway. Um, <laughs> um, no, they saw the furnace. And they felt the fear. And they could feel the heat. They just saw more. And what they saw more was um, something eternal. Like, and it gave them the courage to defy the order of the king. And basically what they said, well, actually what they said was, our God... Um, will deliver us. Our God can deliver us. Our God will deliver us. But even if he doesn't, I'm not bowing down to you. And so they defy the order of a king. And they did it because they saw more than the fiery furnace. Moses, Hebrews 11:27 says this, Moses, who by faith left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king. Okay, how do he get to that no fear place? Here's how he endured by seeing 
him who is unseen. So put that together. Moses saw the king of Egypt. He wasn't going, he's not, he's a pretty good guy, actually. (laughs) Um, He wasn't nice. And he knew what he could do, that he could hurt him and execute him. Um, He just saw more than that. Didn't deny it, he just saw more. Joshua and Caleb, Numbers 13. You know this story as well. They came back with a different report than the other spies. You remember the story. The people of God are on the shores of the Jordan, about to enter into this land of promise. So just before that, they sent out spies to kind of come back and tell us, what's the lay of the land? What are we up against here? And they came back with this report in verse 27 of Numbers 13, that the land certainly is a land of abundance. All the good stuff is there it's flowing with milk and honey but then they say this in verse 28 but the people who live in the land are strong and the cities are fortified and very large indeed it's a land that devours its inhabitants verse 32 and all the people we saw were men of great size so much so that we became like grasshoppers in our own sight it's always blown me away If somebody, you you little grasshopper, you'd be offended. They saw themselves as grasshoppers. And grasshoppers don't take the land. They don't attempt it. They don't cross the Jordan. Grasshoppers are incapable. We uh, look like grasshoppers in our own sight, and that's all they could see. The fortified cities and people of great size, Joshua and Caleb, saw exactly the same things. Okay? Cities were fortified and very large. That's what they saw. And the people are very strong. That's what they saw. They saw all of that. They didn't minimize it or deny it. They didn't come back and go, they're not that fortified. They're not that big. They're kind of big, but not that big. (sighs) No, they just saw more than that. Cities are fortified and very large. And those people are incredibly strong and stronger than us. They just saw more. Nehemiah. Love the story, too. He'd given himself to a good work and a noble cause. And as you know, it was to rebuild the wall in Jerusalem. Key word there actually is rebuild, because I want to invite you into that story, because you don't have a wall to rebuild, but you have something to rebuild. Rebuild. You, you give yourself to rebuild anything. A marriage, a relationship, um, a church. Uh, it is a good and noble cause. But it's, wow, are we going to be able to do this? So Nehemiah is in the middle of that, and in chapter 4 of Nehemiah, they're halfway there, which means some significant things, because the halfway point in anything is both figuratively and literally a a, a very critical spot, because the halfway point means, among other things, this, that you've been at it for a while. Dial into that. And while they'd actually begun to make some progress, because they're halfway there, um, at the halfway point, you're not near done. So you've been there for a while. You're, you've made some progress, but you got a long way to go, only halfway there. The ancients had a word for it. They called it acedia. It's, it, it speaks uh, symbolically and really to the fatigue that strikes at noonday, to, to the heat of the midday sun. Dial into that um, archetypal picture, the halfway Point. There were construction when I was in college uh, every summer, and, and you'd get there in the morning, and you're fresh, and, you know, you're young, and I'm ready to go, and I'm ready to go, and at noon, you're hot, and it's 
tired, and it's not just that it's unbearably hot or that you're unbearably tired. It's that you have been in the sun for quite a while, and you're not near done. It even speaks to midlife. I'm 40 years old, 45 years, somewhere in there. You are, this is all archetypal symbolic language, that midlife thing when you've been building and a marriage and a family and you're halfway there and all of a sudden the laborers run out of energy. That's what it says next. The heat of the noonday, different than the morning. When you're fresh and eager, the heat of the evening is different even than the morning because even though it's hot in the evening and you're tired because you've been at it all day, your whole life, and the evening you're done and you can rest. But in this place in the middle, Nehemiah 4.10, it says that the strength of the laborers was giving out halfway through because there was still so much rubble. Have we built something? Yeah. Have we made progress? Sure. But look, look at what's still there. And the rubble was all they could see. I think, you know, I bet there's things in your mind right now. The rubble was all they could see, and they were losing hope. Here's the deal. Anyone who has ever persevered in anything at all, be it a marriage, a career, a sport, a school, uh, raising kids, building a church, um, sooner or later um, has been able to see more than the rubble. More than the rubble of the relationship, the marriage, the ministry, more than the mistake you made. Really serious mistake you made 10 years ago. If all you see is the rubble and the laborers were losing energy because the rubble was all they could see. Um, I remember years ago uh, doing a talk about our need to understand that while there are things in our lives that are true, there are other things about us and about our lives that are more true, which sounds kind of weird. So let me tell you something that's true about you. Here's what I know about you. (sighs) You have blown it badly. (laughs) Don't you like me now? (laughs) Thanks. Mistakes? More than a few, promise. Um, You are whole... Sinners, I'm uh, refraining from dirty, rotten, just plain old sinners. Guess what? All true. Guess what's more true? That in him you have, I have, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. And according to the riches of his grace, you have, I have, we have been made complete. But what do you see? Um, Can you see anything but the rubble? What is the rubble for you um, that's convinced you you can't rebuild? Not, not, not that. Um, listen to me as I close. Just two things. One is that sometimes our ability to see more uh, is a choice. And, and I get kind of rough with you here. And, and um, like a dad, put on my dad energy and say, and you got to do it. You got to do it. You've got, you, you got to quit staring at this and make a choice. Lift up your head and see more. Um, redirect your gaze. It's within your power to do that, but sometimes it's not. I know that's true. So, so sometimes it's your choice, but sometimes it's not. And sometimes your ability to see more 
can only come in the form of a gift. Like, God helps you see more. Great story about that. Elijah's, Elisha's ser- servant um, was in a place like this where he needed a gift to be able to see. Because in 2 Kings 6, the Syrian army had surrounded the city, and they were going down, and we don't have a chance. So the servant comes to Elisha and says, what shall we do? (laughs) Just like that. It was a Monty Python uh, version of the Bible. What shall we do? Anyway, um, Elisha in verse 16 then says this, don't be afraid. Easy for you to say. Don't be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And the servant said, really? Well, it's kind of in the Bible. But he, yeah, what? What do you see? That I don't see. Because you just told me there's more with us than with them. And all I see are these Syrians all around. And so Elisha prayed, Lord, <coughs> I pray you open his eyes that he may see what he can't see. I don't care how much he wants to Lord, open his eyes that he can see what he can't see. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around. So what are you saying, Dave? What are you trying to tell us that there's, there's horses and chariots of fire all around Oak Hills Church in my life? Uh, no, I'm not trying to tell you that. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is this. God is for you. God is for us. And if God is for you, who can be against you? Listen, says Paul in Romans eight thirty one. He who did not spare his own son. Listen to me. He who did not spare his own son. Talking about God, but delivered him up for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us everything we need, even when the foundations are shaken? He goes on in verse 33. Who's going to bring a charge against God's Elect, because sometimes that's what we're laboring under, the sense of condemnation and I'm being uh, condemned somehow by God. Who uh, brings the charge against God's elect? God? No. See, that, that, that's not what God does. Um, he's not the one who brings the charge. And who's the one who condemns? Um, Christ? No, he says. So that's, not what, that's not what Christ does. Christ is the one who died, remember? He is the one who was raised and is now sitting at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us. That's what he does when the foundations are shaken. So think about it. He says in verse 35, who can separate us from the love of God? Um, Tribulation can scare me, distress can exhaust me, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword, COVID. No. For I'm convinced that neither life nor death nor angels, principalities or powers, things present, things to come, even if the foundations are shaken and the pendulum swings, nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So here's the word. Get your hopes up. Get your hopes up, church. Um, Redirect your gaze. Lift up your head so you can see more. And when you can't, we pray. 
And so I close right now. And so, Lord, I pray, help us see what we can't see. Because we're bad, because we're human. Um, help us see um, what we can't see. Help us see more. Help us see you in Jesus' name. Amen.